0: A number of you have asked me, will we uh, be showing the clip of Disney's second movie with uh, Geppetto and uh, Pinocchio inside Monstro? Bill or Lloyd might, I won't. Uh, there you have it. Um, we're looking at uh, the book of Jonah, and before we look at part of the psalm prayer in Jonah chapter 2, I want to give you a, su- a few observations about the great fish and Jonah. We began to study acknowledging that so much attention has been put on the great fish that we've missed the great god of the story but we now come to that section where we need to spend a little bit of time talking about the great fish as mentioned many dismiss the notion of not only the miracle or the possibility of a fish swallowing jonah but they dismiss the entire book on that basis other scholars will redefine the work and call it a fictitional book a story to tell another point and Still others will work along the line of a a la Ripley's Believe It or Not. Uh, Let's go find other examples of when a person was swallowed by an animal and survived. And uh, 20-some years ago when I taught this book at another church, um, I did a lot of research back in the library days when you went to the library with card catalogs and got the periodicals and interlibrary loan and made photocopies. Some of you have no idea what I just talked about, but... uh, (laughs) Old school before the intranet, internet, worldwide internet, and you had to work for a living. But anyway, um, <laughs> I got all these articles and photocopies and turned them into slides, and I showed these images of people that had been swallowed by a whale and lived to tell about it. And in the last few months preparing for the book of Jonah, it struck me that de facto removes the miracle aspect. If we approach it that way, it becomes a phenomena, not a supernatural miracle. To give you some perspective on this, uh, I want to show you three slides. One is just a proportion and you have the, the blue whale, of course, is the largest of the whales. And you've got a diver there and any number of those animals would have a large enough uh, stomach, we would call it area for a person to be swallowed in, certainly. The next slide shows a perspective that I like. You've got about a hundred foot uh, blue whale, and they have put 17 five foot, six inch divers with fins and masks on, obviously, spaced apart a little bit, head to toe, above the animal. The weight is what's overwhelming. 200 tons a blue whale can weigh up to. And to get a perspective on that, that's eight DC9s filled to capacity. The last is just an image of a diver by a sperm whale. Why he or she would want to do that, I don't know, but there you have it. Maybe a bucket list for them. Uh, But they're enormous animals, and beyond all that, the sovereign creator of the universe created the earth. The fish that inhabit the earth. He created the dirt of the earth, and from that dirt he made animals, and he made man. When... I believe Jesus on his hands and knees fashioned a dirt man. The word is Adam. We've talked about this many times in Hebrew. He turned dirt Adam into Adam. And when he breathed the the life of the breath of life into that dirt man, he became a living being, the image of God. Different than all the other things that God had created. All this environment, all the stars, the atmosphere the animal kingdom all was made to put man as the center as his image bearer in that garden now that is all a miracle and if the god of the universe can create physics and the laws of physics and science and light and put them in place i think he could handle a whale or a fish swallowing a man god the sovereign does many things in this book there are 10 miracles but i want you to see four times the word a point is used it's used in most bibles consistently in your booklet it's used, and it's the same exact word. God appointed a great fish, he appointed a plant, he appointed a worm, and he appointed a scorching wind. Each of those things, God said, you're going to do a thing for me in my bidding. I'm commanding you, I'm making you do this thing. Not that they had a choice, but God appointed them, he called them, select them, chose them to do something. Now, no one ever gets upset about the possibility that God appointed a worm. But they sure get upset about the concept that God could have appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. Scholars are funny. We're all funny in the things we attack, the things that bother us. Paul Simon wrote a song called Jonah on his One Trick Pony album. And part of the lyric says, they say Jonah was swallowed by a whale. But I say there is no truth to this tale. I know Jonah. He was swallowed by a song. I don't know what in the world that means but Paul Simon wrote it, so there you have it. But he doesn't believe it. I said there is no truth to that tale. If the God of the universe can create all that we have just reviewed and he can put Jonah in a context, he can cause a storm, and when the sailors throw Jonah overboard, if he wants to appoint a great fish to swallow his prophet, that's up to God. Dr. Howard Hendricks, mentor, friend, professor, For 60 some years at Dallas Seminary often said the size of your God determines the size of your faith. And we domesticate God into our image and say God could not do this, but he he could appoint a worm. But he certainly couldn't appoint a whale. And that is part of your thinking on the truth of Scripture. Now, the subject of the book of Jonah is not Jonah. Merely, not merely a fish, not merely even the things he appoints, not merely the ten miracles. The point, the theme, the the big picture of Jonah is God's grace is unstoppable. God is going to be gracious to a people that Jonah loathes. And Jonah is a picture of Israel not doing her job. Israel was to be a light to the nations, to be a blessing to the world from the Abrahamic covenant. So Jonah is a story at many levels, not only the concrete story we read, the picture of the na- nation of Israel not following their God, a disobedient prophet, unlike, just like a disobedient nation. And then we apply all the way to Christ's words when we'll look at that in the weeks to come. So it is a powerful, poignant story. Essentially, the last thing scholars will take to task is this psalm. And they will say, how could he have written a psalm in the belly of a fish? How could he have written the psalm? Or they will argue from a it's placed in the wrong part of the book angle. I know this makes very little sense to most of us here. We don't care about it. But I think it's fascinating the, the energy with which scholarship goes after discrediting the Bible. When the fact of the matter is everything is written after the fact. Every story in Scripture is written after the fact of the story. Today, many football teams will play around the country, and we'll watch those, and sports writers will be pecking on their their notebook or on their iPad or device or writing it, and then tomorrow morning it will be in the paper after the fact. Tonight you will watch sports reels after the fact of a game. So why is it seem surprising that the psalm of Jonah would have been written after the fact and then folded into his narrative? but to hopefully help you as you read Scripture and you find yourself wondering or maybe someone has discredited the Scripture in your experience, and this maybe will help you appreciate the Word of God for what it is. If you have the little booklet, I would like you to turn to page 14, or you can turn to Jonah in your Bible. Let's stand, and I'd like us to read, all of us aloud, read together the first six verses. We're reading from the New American Standard Version, either the booklet or if you have the... New American Standard Bible, either one's fine. The first six verses, this is the word of God. Let's read it well. Let's read it clearly. Let's take our time. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish, and he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice, for you had cast me into the deep, Into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever, but you have brought up my life from the pit. O oh Lord, my God, you can be seated. Now, a casual reading of the psalm, it, it seems like Jonah has got his head together. Jonah's changed, Jonah's repenting, Jonah's on the right track now. God used this incredible experience of the storm at sea, the storm at sea throwing him overboard, uh, near drowning, a great fish swallows him to save him, and now Jonah has got it all right. Um, But a closer examination of the psalm and the book will show Jonah hasn't changed at all. Jonah is unrepentant, but he writes this interesting psalm that we want to take a little bit of a look at. Now, twice in the book, the word prayer occurs. It's the most common word in the Old Testament for prayer. It's found here in chapter 2, verse 1 where Jonah prayed. I often say when things get bad enough, that's when we pray. Uh, The correlation of looking at your life and problems and challenges in our life that make us pray is a really annoying and uncomfortable uh, thing to think through but be that as it may Uh, Jonah is in trouble and he prays the only other time the word occurs is in chapter 4 verse 2 again every other time they're calling on the Lord the sailors call on the Lord Jonah calls on the Lord why do I make the distinction because when you're in trouble you're calling help help me God I'm in trouble would you please intercede on my behalf that's that's not a prayer, if you will, it is, but a prayer is a little more involved. And so the psalm prayer hymn that we're going to look at is his prayer to God, obviously, post the experience, he writes it. Now, uh, in the psalms, whether it's this kind of psalm or the book of psalms or other psalms in parts of our scripture, one of the things you want to watch for is structure. We sang a number of songs today, and maybe they were new, maybe you know them well. When you put music and lyric together, and if lyric rhymes for the English ear and you have meter and so forth and measure, it's you can very quickly memorize a song, can't you? Very quickly you'll know the lyrics to a song, even a long song, because it all works together. Well, the Hebrew mind, these were song psalms, but they used a structure. Not for a rhyming English reader, obviously, but they use a structure that we can still see. And I wanted to show you, we call them parallels or parallelisms. I just want to show you three of them in verse 2 just to get you started. So when you're studying this uh, during the week, which I hope you will, you can start making all these little parallel line connections between all these repetitions and restatements. Why? Because the parallel expression restates, reframes, and helps remind the listener. So look at them. Look at verse two. I called out. You see that? That's parallel to what? I cried for help. One, he's calling out to God. He's in trouble. And the parallel, I cried out. The second parallel, out of of my distress to the Lord, is parallel to what? The second strophe, from the depth of Sheol, I called out. I cried out. Out of my distress to the Lord from the depth of Sheol. So distress and depth will be parallel. And the last one I'll show you. He answered me, parallel to, you heard my voice. So as you're going through, and if you're bored when I'm preaching or whoever's preaching next week, if you're bored, look for parallels in Psalms. Because what will happen, it'll, it'll start to reinforce those ideas. You'll remember, you retain them as if you were singing them, and the Hebrew mind, of course, uh, for the Jew, they had most of the Psalms memorized because they sang them all the time. That was their hymn book, if you will. Now, a couple of words I want to draw to your attention, the word depth and the word sheol. Depth literally here is belly, which is sort of a fun uh, wordplay because he's in the belly of a fish, but he says he's in the belly of sheol. Now, sheol is a bit of a puzzle. Sheol is used a lot in the Old Testament and the way you determine what what a word means is how it's used. We've talked about this many times, but it bears reinforcement. We look at what we call fields of meaning. How is a term used in a particular way so we understand what does it mean? How does the Bible use a word? Sheol does not mean hell. It will come in the New Testament in a different word form and some other Greek words before we'll have that concept of hell. But Sheol is an unplace and a non-place, if you will. Some of the ways Scripture uses death, uh, uses uh, Sheol, has to do with death. But the the just and the unjust are both in this place called Sheol. In Job chapter seventeen, he speaks of the bars of Sheol, meaning you can't get out once you're in Sheol. Um, literally it could be translated no land or unland, depending on its derivative into the Hebrew Bible. In Psalm eighty eight, inhabitants of Sheol cannot praise God. So you're getting this picture of this dark place where you're barred in, you can't communicate, if you will, you can't even praise God from Sheol. And lastly, the Proverbs in Proverbs nine and twenty one refer to it as a place of no understanding. So we might say it's a hopeless place. It's on the edge of death in some sometimes the way that the word is used. And that's what I would argue here. Some people believe Jonah died when he went to Sheol. Now that makes for great preaching. Because if he died in that watery grave inside the belly of the fish, and then he's vomited up onto dry land, he's resurrected, and then when Jesus says, this generation will see no sign but the sign of Jonah, that's good preaching fodder, baby. We like that stuff. But there's nothing in the text that says Jonah died. In fact, I would argue, why does he appoint a great fish to swallow him if he's dead? Let him drown. You don't need the miracle of the great fish. Careful Bible students uh, always ask and answer the question, what do we know for sure from the passage? Uh, Last week in our community group, we had a lot of fun talking about some rabbit trails and what ifs. And it was a great discussion. We all like to do that. We run down these rabbit trails. What about this? What does that mean? And and we get lost in the weeds very quickly. And one of the rules of thumb is you always come back to, what does the text tell us for sure? What can we know God wants us to know from this passage? Not to go too far with it, which is misinterpreting it or misrepresenting it, even worse. So we're always driven back to a simple Bible study principle What does the text say? What does it mean? What did it mean in context? How are those words used elsewhere? And that's what a good student of the Bible does when you're reading and doing your devotions. You're asking those questions to stay on track. Well, in verse 3, Jonah does recognize God's hand uh, in in these actions, which is very interesting because the sailors were the ones who pitched him overboard. But he says it was God who did it. Look at verse 3. For you had cast me into the deep. Into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me, and your breakers and billows passed over me. So he attributes, even though the sailors were the the physical hands, he attributes that to God's discipline on him, which is correct. Verses 3 and following depict a watery grave, and if you study it at some length, it is kind of a hopeless, dark, creepy uh, set of explanations where he is, how he feels, what's happening to him. In verse 4, we have the word expelled in the New American Standard. It's a very strong word. It has the idea of banishment or being driven away. Implication, you cannot come back. In, In the old Western movies, when they banish someone to the wilderness, they banish somebody to the desert. You couldn't come back. And that's the same image, which fits with Sheol. He's banished from God's sight, and unless God brings him back, there's no way back for him. He's hopeless and helpless as are we all in our sin apart from God's work. So Jonah prays out of distress, but he does not pray for forgiveness. He does not repent. He does not say he did anything wrong. He just asks God to help him, and he thanks him for delivering him. The psalm, if you will, is all about me. Now, if you're, again, a person who takes notes in your Bible or you can use the booklet, I want you to do a little exercise. I want you to circle all the first-person pronouns that you can see in verses 1 to 6. I'll read them out loud so you can see them. I called out of my distress. He answered me. I cried for help. You heard my voice. You had cast me into the deep. The current engulfed me. The billows passed over me. I said, I, I will. The water encompassed me. On it goes. You can circle them all all through those 10 verses. Now, from a structural standpoint, we might say, well, there's nothing wrong about that. But the overemphasis of what's happening to him is very telling about where Jonah still is. It's all about me. It's all about Jonah and what God did for Jonah. The exception would be verse six, where he says, but you have brought up my life from the pit and also where his anticipation of going to the holy temple to worship. And in that period of time, you have the tabernacle in the wilderness and the temple complex built in Solomon's time. And so this prophet is anticipating a time when he's going to go back and worship. However, we don't have no record. We have no record of that in the story of Jonah. Now, just to give you a little comparison of the way the sailors responded to the way Jonah responded, I want you to see this. This chart will help a little, I hope. In chapter 1, verse 4, we have a crisis on the sea. The sailors are working feverishly. They're calling out to their pagan gods. They wake Jonah up from the belly of the boat to say, Get up and call on your God. We're perishing. And when Jonah says, You know, he's a Hebrew and so forth, uh, and throw me over and the storm will stop, and they're unwilling to do that, they work even harder. And finally, they pitch him over and the crisis ends. And Chapter 2, Jonah is in crisis in the sea. He's not worried about what's going on on the boat when the sailors are about to perish. But he is very self-focused when he's drowning, when he's in the water. The prayer to Yahweh from the sailors in chapter 1, verse 14, uh, that they won't, they won't be guilty for what they're doing, they're calling out for help, as where Jonah is praying to Yahweh in chapter 2. In chapter 1, verse 15, we have the sailors' deliverance as well as Jonah's deliverance in chapter 2. And then we have the sacrifice and vows in chapter 1, 16. I believe that we would call that those sailors converted because they moved from praying to their pagan gods to calling to Jonah's God, the Hebrew God. And when the storm stopped after they threw Jonah in, they offered sacrifice, we would call that worship. They worshipped Yahweh Elohim with what they had experienced and they we would say we're converted. And Jonah looks for an anticipation in chapter 2, verse 9, of a time when he will worship and pay vows, uh, give vows to God. Both are delivered, but I think it gives us a little different insight on how the pagan, how the sailor who didn't know Yahweh responded to the same events versus how Jonah responded to those events when they were personal. The so what of the psalm, if you will, is. Just to take a look at how self-centered Jonah is and to ask you the question, and I've asked the question all week, how self-centered am I? This psalm is all about me. It's all about Jonah. It's not about the man on the boat. It's not about Nineveh. It's all about Jonah. He's thankful he didn't drown. He looks forward to a time when he's going to, we would say, go to church in our terminology. (laughs) But there's no repentance. There's no forgiveness. There's no God forgive me for not obeying you, for putting those people in peril. I will go do what you've asked me to do now. And by the end of the book, we will see he hasn't changed at all. In fact, in some ways, he's more ensconced in his selfishness than when he began. So the so what question comes, is your Christian life all about you? The reality of being a Christian in America, if we grew up here, we grew up with a concept called the American dream. And I understand there's builders and boomers and millennials and so forth. I understand all that. But my point is simply this. We grew up in a context. And that context was essentially, if you do these things, these things will happen to you. If we were to take health and prosperity and success and upward mobility, and bigger, better, newer, more, and an ease of life, if we were to take those threads out of the American Christian fabric, I fear we would unravel. Because it is so enmeshed in how we look at our Christian life. Because this is our lens. You go to Russia with Larry and Ann Kaiser. You go to Peru with FSM. You go to Nigeria your worldview changes quite a bit. You go where people have nothing. They don't know what iOS 7 is, and they could care less what it is. And that's all we've been talking about for a month now, right? It's a different world when you leave this big island. Please hear me. I'm not not whining or complaining or raining on the parade. I'm just asking you to think critically about how you view your Christian life as a Westerner enmeshed in this concept of success, of doing the right thing, of education, of jobs, of upward mobility, of bigger, better, and more. If we do this, we're successful. That's all I'm asking you to think about. And when I approach my Christianity that way, it is all about me. Now, some in this room are far more mature in your Christian walk than me. I know that. I do not say that uh, in a cavalier way. I know that. But I've got to tell you, it is all about me. Some of us may have heard this years ago, our children are are older now, but when you have little kids, someone exposes you to the toddler's creed. Some of you moms might have come across the toddler's creed. There's a number of variations of it, but this is a toddler's creed. If I want it, it's mine. If it's in my hand, it's mine. If I can take it away from you, it's mine. If I had it a while ago, it's mine. If it's mine, it must never appear to be yours in any way. If we're building something together, all the pieces are mine. If it looks like mine, it's mine. If I give it to you and I change my mind later, it's mine. And once it's mine, it will never belong to anyone else, no matter what, it's always mine. I took the liberty, perhaps a bit unfair, to write a Christian creed. My, your maybe, unspoken expectations of God as a toddler Christian creed. If I want it, I expect you to give it. If I have it, I want to keep it. If I want more, I expect you to give me more. If you have it, I want you to give it to me. If I had it and I want it back, I expect you to give it back to me. And if I'm involved in something, it must be all about me. And I'll stop there because I don't want you to be miserable. <laughs> I'm miserable enough, as it is, writing it. Now, I don't want to overstate this or be a killjoy to the joy of Christian life. But as I've studied this for the past two weeks, this is the thing that just keeps hitting me again and again and again, is how selfish this man is. And when you stumble across something like that, you hold the mirror up, and you go, I am the same man. It's all about me. This little canister that I carry every day is my daily allocation of meds. Every evening or every morning I refill it and I set it in a certain place. I could forget my keys, I could forget my wallet, I could forget my phone, I could forget my briefcase. I panic if I don't have this on my possession if it's in my watch pocket on my blue jeans and I've had it for years and I hate it I don't have to remind myself when to take these pills my body tells me and every time I swallow them I hate it it controls my life or you might say it helps my life I think it stinks. Some of you are on insulin or other medications that you have to take and manage, and maybe you know a little bit of what I'm speaking. All this past two, three weeks, I've been thinking this is all about me. I can't tell you where you are, and my goal is not to make you feel guilty. I think it's ironic and delicious and wonderful. We didn't even plan it, and they sang, I surrender all. <laughs> I had a professor in seminary, we would sing uh, the hymn, uh, Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. And he leaned over and said, Easily, I just lie it again. <laughs> <laughs> I surrender all? I know it's a prayer. Don't take me too far. Come on. You know me well. Don't take me too far. I know it's a prayer, but what are we saying? Would we really surrender everything to follow him? You and I have a choice to make every single day. Will we serve ourselves merely or will we serve our Savior? And to get up in the morning and to get the medications flowing and the shower going and your breakfast routine and hopefully some time in the Word before you get out the door, how do you, how do I move from, I'm thankful that I'm saved. I'm I'm thankful that he loved his father so much that he died in my place, on my behalf, instead of me, just like he did for you. I'm thankful for that. But that's letter A in the alphabet of discipleship okay, we checked that box and we should for all, forever be thankful that he saves us when we deserve hell, right? But to grow beyond, it's not all about me. We serve a king. We're slaves, we're servants, we're bondservants, we're a royal priesthood, a chosen nation to serve him, not just our own desires. I'm not dissing the American dream. I'm not saying it's all wrong. Please don't run to that conclusion. I'm asking you to think. If your Christianity and mine is just our salvation and all about me, are we missing what God intended for us? I would argue yes. It's a wonderful part. Self preoccupation is a bottomless pit because nothing ever satisfies. Bigger, better, newer, more never satisfies. OS 7 will not be the last. If they continue, they'll be iPhone 27s. Who knows? Technology will always be hanging out there. Bigger, better, newer, more will always be an allure. Upward mobility will always be part of America's DNA, unless, of course, the country fails. And then it'll be interesting to see what we believe. Because most of the world lives not like us. But from hand to mouth, and they love Christ, those who know Christ in those countries, they love Christ in some ways, put us to shame. Because they have no props. They have no medications to swallow, to turn down the noise, to control the blood sugar, to ease the pain, to ease the arthritis. They just live with it. We're blessed. I think we're very blessed. I'm thankful. I'm grateful. We should be humble. But is that all there is? We look to God for our deliverance, but do we look to God for our discipleship? To see others as more important than yourself is where I think it begins. When you get married, you start to learn this lesson early in your married years. You die to self or you kill each other. (laughs) And then you have children, and then you either die to self or you kill your children and each other. And to raise a family is a great experience of dying to self and putting others' needs before you. But we're still selfish. I'm still selfish. I can't eradicate that part of my nature, nor can you. But here's my challenge to you. (laughs) Could this week be a little less selfish than last? Just a little less. Maybe 10% less. That somebody else is more important than you? Because you love them in Christ's love? You and I are to be ambassadors. We're to share Christ with those around us. When was the last time we shared Christ? Now here's the problem that drives me crazy and makes me appreciative of this little container. I talk to more people who live in chronic pain with bad backs than I do probably anybody else. I did not choose this, and I would give it back in a second. But the people that God has put in my path because of this, I would never have known. From the doctor's offices to the patients I meet to neighbors I see who have the same issues I have. This morning, three people telling me about someone who just had major back surgery. I probably spend 10 hours a month conservatively talking to emailing with people who are facing back surgeries or who have had bad surgeries go badly. I talk about pain management, about chronic pain, about how do you keep going. I, do, I don't like this. I think it stinks. But you know what it does? It makes me get out of myself. Every time. Because when I hear someone facing back surgery, I say, can I call them and tell them to wait for, until we talk? Just let me tell them to wait just a little bit. Because I've learned a lot in 12 years. I'm the kind of doctor that can't help you, but I know some things. What's yours? And that all about me thing, maybe in God's great kindness, can be turned just enough to say, how will you use me to share Christ with people that don't know him? This isn't about guilt. Don't feel bad. Don't feel ashamed. We're all in the same mud puddle. We're selfish human beings. Check Next, next question. What are we going to do about it? And by God's power, by God's word, by God's grace, by God's people, I believe we can change. And you can be a little less selfish. I can be a little less self-preoccupied. I can see others as more important than myself. Sounds like Philippians chapter 2, if I remember correctly. To see others as more important. And the worldview becomes not all about me. And, oh, thank you that you delivered me. I didn't drown. You saved me and you appointed a great fish. And now I'm going to serve you the rest of my life. No, he's going to be a bitter, ugly old man at the end of the book. Just like a lot of us if we don't get help. Father, thank you that you love us. Thank you that your word is true. I pray not to make us feel worse than we already do but to encourage us with the hope that you can use us. Life isn't just about me. It's about a big world out there. It's your harvest. It's your field. We're just the workers you have sent to your field. Give us eyes to see beyond ourselves, And as we delight in seeing you use us, we'll find a joy we never knew existed far beyond just being petty, selfish people. We love you, Lord Jesus, as always. We want to love you well. In your name we ask and pray, amen. Have a phenomenal week.